Well, we wrap up today our series that we've been in for the past, this is week four, we've been in it three weeks, this is week four, our series called Forward in Faith. The theme of our series is that we're moving forward according to God's will and building in faith according to his call. And as we kind of conclude today, we've got one more testimony that uh, is going to be shared with you. Gary Looney's going to come up and he's going to share with you how the Lord's been working in his life uh, in the past, but also as it relates to our current campaign. So Gary, if you'd come up and share. How about now? All right. Well, this just feels awkward. <laughs> um, let me start out by saying that, uh, you know, that God has really blessed us over the years. And uh, I just want to just give you a quick down and dirty on how God has worked in our lives. So, uh, you know, just be patient with me on here. Um Actually, what it's, it's the difference between tithing and offering, okay? Deborah and I were married in 1975, and I was 19, and she was 17. And I can't believe it's been 46 years already. How many 17-year-olds do we have out here? <laughs> no, not, not 71, 70. <laughs> All right, um... Well, when we first got started, I was a young two-striper, uh, E3 in the Air Force. We were stationed at Columbus Air Force Base, Mississippi. When we first got married, we agreed that we would always pay our tithes out of what we uh, got paid. Well, we got paid on the first of the month. As, as Now, this is ancient history. This is back in 73 and 74, 75, like that, where you got paid on first of the month, and you starved the rest of the time. But uh, because by, by the end of the month we were broke, um, but the good the good Lord was always good to us, and here's why. However, we never went without food. We would go to our car after church, and uh, in the front seat would be a bag of groceries or a bag of vegetables, fresh vegetables. We never knew where it came from on there and uh, yes they could put it in my car because the cars weren't locked back then okay uh, but we had two older couples in the church that kind of adopted us as their grand youngins I guess now I get to thinking about it I'm about their age now but however but anyway they would they would just about each Sunday take turns on inviting us to eat lunch with them and uh we would go over there and eat lunch with him on Sunday afternoon and spend some time with him. What we didn't know was that we were being taught. We were being taught how to be married, how to give, how to share. And, uh, but basically, I was really enjoying the home cooking, okay? <laughs> but uh, Aunt B would look at us and go, uh, well, honey, it's just leftovers. And I'm sitting there thinking it looks mighty good to me, but yeah, I don't know. But um, we, uh, we separated from the Air Force and went home to where Deborah was from, for Tallahassee, Alabama. And we stayed out for five years. 
And uh, I, was, I was working as a, well, actually as a bread man and a milk man and then an insurance agent. And, uh, but um, before we went back in the Air Force. But in, uh, in the late 70s, the, uh, the economy really tanked. And as an insurance agent, people had to decide whether they wanted to buy groceries or pay their insurance bill. So needless to say, my paycheck went way down. And so our finances kind of got overtaken. Well, you know, I stopped paying tithes because there wasn't enough money to go around. Well, that was what I thought anything. And things were getting worse. You would get these nice little envelopes in the mail with a clear window on them. And most of the time you didn't want to open them because it was like, oh, by the way, you owe for a doctor bill or a dentist bill or an eye doctor. Something that, you know, it was never good news. One night I was sitting there at the kitchen table and I had the checkbook uh, sitting there and I was trying to write out the bills. And uh, Malachi 3 verses 8 through 12 kept coming to my mind. So I went back and read Malachi. And the first portion I read was, you have robbed me of my tithes and you are cursed. And I thought, well, that's me. And, uh, but then I read just a little bit further down and it said, try me to see if I'll open up the windows of heaven. So I said, hmm, let me look over, you know, be curious again. So I looked up Luke 6.38. It says, if you'll give it back to me, I will give it back to you, pressed down, shaken down, and overflowing. So I said, well, God, I don't know how you're going to do this, but I'm just, it's in your hands, and uh, I'm going to pay you first, and then how you work this out, I don't know, but my job is to sit back and watch. Well, Deborah and I prayed about it, and I told her about it. And uh, obviously she, she had agreed. Things started to change. Every now and then, our bills were getting paid. My car, my washing machine, my dryer, my air conditioner, something kept tearing up every week. So it's, suddenly they started working correctly. And, uh, and then every now and then, I would actually get a letter in the mail and it would be, you have a refund check for your power company or an insurance payment that you overpaid or something. And I was like, wow. So after that, we never looked back. Uh, I figure right now I'm blessed more than I've ever deserved. Uh, I've been blessed with two great kids and four great, uh, I mean, four grandkids. God has always supplied our needs. Now, he didn't, he didn't say, I'm going to take care of all you wants. But he said, I'll meet your needs. But our job was to trust him on there. That was tithing, offering. Offering was a lesson I had to learn the hard way on, too. You know, I mean, hey, look, I'm sorry I'm stubborn, but uh, I think Deborah will back me up on that one. But uh, I remember one time there was a mission trip going on, and uh, 
I wrote a check and I gave it to the the dad of the of the girl going on the mission trip. And I said, this is for your mission trip. He handed it back to me. He said, you, you, you need it more than we do. And I remember thinking to myself, I dare you to rob me of my blessing. So he thought about it for a second and he took the check. But it really, I mean, it was, you know, if you don't, if you don't give an offering, how do you expect the blessing back? But, but it was the mentality that kind of got me right then. It was like, I dare you. You're, you're robbing me of my opportunity to, for God to bless me. Um, so I had to learn the difference between tithing and offering. And uh, sorry to say, yes, it, it took a while for to get through this thick head of mine. But, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, if you stop and think about it, paying tithes is only giving back what God has already given to you. Offering is a cost to me. In the older days, you know, you would give an offering and you would take an animal. Well, an animal is something that you would be eating, using for clothing and everything else. So there was a cost each time they gave an offering. Um, um, so sometimes when I'm thinking about it, it says God has always honored offerings. And that, uh, but an offering is something between you and God, not between someone else. So it's like when I filled out our pledge card, what's on it is my business between me and the good Lord. What's on it for you is between you and God, not somebody else. So the bottom line of it is offering is a walk of faith. To see what God can do. Here's the question. And I'll, I'm going to borrow one more minute if you don't mind. Joshua kept coming into my mind. God told Joshua to tell the people. He didn't tell the people. He told Joshua. He said, Joshua, tell the priest. He said, I want you all to cross the river. Well, the river was in flood season. All right. And he told the priest, take the off, take the altar and go first the water was still running the river was still flooding the priest had to walk towards the water now I'm not sure how much faith the priest had especially the first two in line but when did God part the water when they stepped into the water so that is my question tonight or this morning to you guys. It's to myself too. The question is, will we step into the water? Thank you, Gary. You know, God is faithful, and you've heard testimonies to that truth over the past several weeks. And because he's faithful, that's why we know we can move forward in faith. And we've been challenging you as a church family to pray. To you know, We're not saying give X amount of dollars. We're not saying you know, uh, what you should do with your time and your talents. That's, as Gary pointed out, all of those, that's between you and the Lord. Let the Lord lead you. But in order to do that, you have to ask God. You have to spend time with him. 
In order to recognize his voice, you need to know his voice. And so the question I want to ask this morning with the time that we have left uh, is, what is it that fuels you? What is it that motivates you? What is it that, when you act, what is it a result of? Is it some motivation? Uh, Is it stress in your life or a deadline that needs to be met or the fact that you're acting because nobody else will? I mean, you know, that's, that happens from time to time. Or is it really that your motivation, are you fueled by prayer? Uh, When we look at the story of Nehemiah, we know that he was a man who sought the Lord and who acted as a result of what God had told him to do. He was a man who was fueled by prayer. And throughout this time, we've challenged you to pray. Um, We Hopefully you have. Because the reason is we know that if we're going to move forward together as a church with this campaign or anything that we do for the kingdom of God, we need to be a church, we need to be individuals, we need to be families who are fueled by prayer. You cannot move forward on your feet or you should not move forward on your feet until you've spent time on your knees. We need to seek the Lord's will and know what he wants us to do in order to act with confidence and with faith as we move forward. And Nehemiah teaches us some, some truths about, some lessons about what it means to be fueled by prayer, a prayer-powered person. The first is this. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2 all the way through verse 7, zeroing in, or, or chapter 7, some verses from each of those, but we're zeroing in really on chapter 2, verse 18. And we see Nehemiah teaches us some lessons. The first is this. Be sure that your foundational motives are sincere. Whatever you do, we need to do it with sincere motives. And here's what I mean by that. It needs to be godly. It needs to be about integrity. It needs to be about character, the type of integrity and character that God builds in your life. So how do we do that? How can I tell if my motives are in line with what God wants, if they truly are sincere by that definition? Well, for one thing, if my motives are sincere, they will include a genuine concern about the conditions around me. I will be concerned about the, the place that God has planted me to serve. We know that Nehemiah was. If you look in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, the book starts in the first two verses. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it had happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, uh, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. Nehemiah was concerned about the people, and he was concerned about the conditions of Jerusalem. That's why he asked. He had a sincere concern for the, the conditions around him. But he also had compassion for the people. He was concerned, yes, about Jerusalem, but he, was com- he had compassion for the people, his people. We know that Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. He was still, uh, he was still with Artaxerxes. A remnant had gone back to, the, to Jerusalem. He stayed there, and uh, he served faithfully as a cupbearer, but he, his heart was still with the people. His mind, his thoughts, his concern was still there with the people. And we see his compassion in verse 3 of chapter 1. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. 
So what's Nehemiah's response? Verse 4, when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So make no mistake here. What really broke Nehemiah's heart, first and foremost, was that the walls being in ruins represented the fact that the glory of God was in reproach. And that broke his heart. But make no mistake also that he was, he was broken because of the condition of the people. God's people were hurting. Uh, the, 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 the people of God, the nation of Israel, was hurting because of the condition of their land. And he had compassion. He didn't have to. I mean, he, he had a pretty cushy gig, right? I mean, you know, yes, he had to taste the, the king's food to see if it was poison, but he also got taken care of very well and had access to the king. And so he didn't have to be worried about those people, yet he was. He was concerned. His heart was broken, and he wept, and he prayed, and he mourned. When we care about people, when we truly care about people, we're going to want to know the facts, regardless of what those facts are and what it obligates us to do. If we really care about the condition of our surroundings, the condition of the people around us, we're going to want to know so that we can do something about it, even if that something is big, and Nehemiah did. He also had a genuine commitment to God, and if our motives are sincere, if we are truly following the Spirit, our motives, our commitment is going to be genuine. Again, verse 4, said he fasted and he prayed before the God of heaven. You know, for Jews, when he heard the news, he sat down. It was customary for them to sit down when they mourned. He mourned over the condition. He identified with the people. He was separate. He didn't have to, but these were his people. He identified with them. He mourned. He knew someone had to do something about the condition of Jerusalem and the people. And he didn't say, hey, God, send somebody. Somebody needs to do something. He said, I'm willing to go. He knew somebody had to do something, and he was willing to step up and be a part of the solution. So he prayed. He fasted. You know, praying one of the most beautiful prayers in all of Scripture. I encourage you to go back and read that prayer filled with compassion, confession, um, a commitment to God, uh, devotion, surrender to God. That was Nehemiah's heart. He was willing to do whatever it took, whatever God asked him to do, because he was truly committed to God. And he fasted. Why do we fast? Well, we fast because every time I feel one of those hunger pains, it reminds me, I need God, I need you more than I need food. I'm committed to you. I want to focus on you. I want to be reminded in a, in a very real way how desperately I need you. Not only do I need you, I need to know your will for my life. I'm committed. I want to know what you want me to do. So I'm earnestly seeking you. That's what Nehemiah was doing. And if you remember back last summer, we fasted together as a church as we were approaching this new era of ministry uh, post-COVID, which we're still not quite there yet, but, uh, but also as it related to this building program. We wanted to seek the Lord earnestly to make sure we were doing exactly what he wanted us to do. That's what Nehemiah's doing here. He's fasting and praying. He wants to know for sure, for certain, God, what is it that you want me to do? And so he seeks God. He's committed. And he experiences a genuine call from God. Nehemiah's actions were initiated by God. If you look forward in chapter 2, verse 12, Nehemiah says, God put this in my heart to do. Why does he act with such confidence? Why is it that he's willing to 
go before the king, all of these things. Well, he knew that God had called him to do what he was going to do. And if God, it was God's purpose, and Nehemiah was willing to follow God, he knew that God was going to equip him to do the task. He was going to give him what he needed. So he experienced that genuine call and responded. Now, if you want to be a prayer-powered person, motives need to be sincere according to what God's called you to do. But also, we need to make sure that our fundamental methods are simple. You know, there's a pattern here. You know, that Nehemiah follows, that we need to imitate. He begins with prayer. He begins by by fasting and praying. Again, verse 4, I fasted, I sat down, I wept, I fasted, and I prayed before the God of heaven. The first thing he does, he mourns, but the first action he takes is to fast and pray. He goes directly to God. He prays to the Lord. He fought his battles on his knees, and so he had strength for the task that God had given him. In fact, this book, if you look at Nehemiah, begins and it ends with prayer. Nehemiah was a man who was powered by prayer, and what he received from that, he received strength from sincerity from solitude. His strength came from his sincere commitment to God, shown in his faith and his time with God, his time alone, solitude, alone with God. Why was he so strong? Why did he act with such confidence? Because he got his strength from his time in the presence of God. He prayed. He was a man of prayer. Charles Swindoll asked this question once. He said, why is prayer so important? Here's his answer. He said, there are four, the four shortest reasons I know. Prayer makes me wait. Prayer clears my vision, all the clutter. I get alone, remove that, and focus on God. It clears my vision. It quiets my heart. Have you ever just had a restless heart? Get alone with God. Allow him to quiet your heart. He said, it quiets my heart. And then, there's an order here, then prayer activates my faith. It's only when I can get alone with God. Clear the clutter. My heart is quiet. I'm focused on the Lord. My vision becomes clear, and my faith is then activated. We see Nehemiah's actions after his prayer show that that happened with him. You know, he went into it with faith, with a willingness to surrender, but he comes out with boldness because his vision is clear. He knows. He's heard a clear voice from God. He knows what to do, and so he acts on that. He's a man of faith who prayed, and then he didn't just pray and say, okay, God, act. I'm going to sit here in my lazy, my lazy boy while you do your thing. No, there was a lot of time that passed between when he heard the news, about four months to when he approaches the king, which we'll see in a moment. What did he do during that time? Well, he got busy planning. He found out what God wanted him to do, so he got to work. He started planning. And, and, and we should, when we know what God wants us to do, there may be a time between when he calls you to do something and when it's time to do it. And so there's some growing that needs to take place in that interim. There's some planning, maybe preparation that we need to do in order to be ready to move when God says move. And that's what Nehemiah did. He spent his time praying and planning during that four-month interim. Nehemiah's plan included some important things that included an appeal to, to authority. First, he goes to God as the ultimate authority. And we see in the conclusion of his prayer in, in, in chapter 1, verse 11, O oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen 
to the prayer of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it in his heart to be kind to me. So before he ever approaches the king, he goes before God and he asks for God's favor. He knows that this is in God's hand. He's appealing to God's authority. And then he goes to the king. Now, We've, we've pointed this out. You probably heard this in your connection group this morning, but it's important to understand how risky this was. Nehemiah is before the king. His face is downcast. You never did that in front of the king. The king didn't want to be depressed. And if you made him depressed, you, you were in trouble. But evidently, the king and Nehemiah had a pretty close connection. I mean, the king trusted him with his life. And so he sees Nehemiah downcast. God's already paved the way here. He asks Nehemiah what's going on. And so Nehemiah sees the open door. He approaches the king. He makes these requests of the king. But even by making these requests to leave this important position, Nehemiah's putting his life in the king's hands. The king could have said, nope, not only that, you're not going to lose your head or whatever. I mean, the king could have done that. You shouldn't question the king. You shouldn't disrespect the position that you have. But Nehemiah, in faith, because he knows God's paving the way, he's appealed to God's authority. Now he appeals to the king's authority. Why does he need to do that? Well, he understood an important principle. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides wherever he pleases. Nehemiah approached the king confidently because He had a clear word from God. His vision had been cleared. His heart was settled. His faith was activated. He knew God was paving the way, and he knew God directed the king's heart. And so he approaches the king. He also assessed his resources. The plan included an assessment of resources, fiscal resources, uh, physical resources, human resources. He asked the king to make him governor of Judah so he'll have the authority to rebuild the wall. When he goes back, he asked for letters so that when he passed through, uh, he could get lumber. He could get safe passage on his way. He he had done his research. He knew what he needed. He even knew how much time he would need to be away. He told the king when he expected to be back. He had planned. He had done the work to plan to be prepared for this. He had done his research. He sought in doing this. Here's what he's, he's, uh, he's seeking to do. Nehemiah sought to bring heaven's limitless supply to bear on humanity's limited systems. You know, looking at this, Nehemiah is taking risks. From a human perspective, he's doing some things that, that no one would advise, leaving his position, approaching the king, being downcast in front of the king, all of these things. But he's been on his knees. He's been praying. And prayer's the way that we bring heaven's resources to bear on the earth. And so he's doing that. He's looking at a situation that seems impossible to everyone, and he is seeking to bring God's power to bear on that situation. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Nehemiah is moving forward in faith because he has been directed by God. He knew he needed resources, physical resources. He knew he needed human resources too. John Maxwell said this, few people are successful without the help of a lot of people. It's true. Leaders can only function on the basis of trust. Nehemiah needed human resources. He needed all of that lumber. He needed safe passage. And when he got to Jerusalem, he would need hands to do the work. He would need people to buy into what he was trying to do. So he gathered his resources and he also appraised the circumstances. When he gets to Jerusalem late at night, 
No one knows. He goes out and he surveys the city. He's heard the report, the wall's a rubble pile. And so he goes to see for himself, is it really that bad? And guess what? It's just that bad. It's a mess. But he sees for himself. He doesn't just take somebody's word for it. He goes out and he investigates himself and he finds that the condition is bad. The condition of the wall is not good. So he assesses, he appraises the circumstances, and then he begins to assign responsibilities. Now, he's already taken responsibility on himself, right? He's there. He's, he's, he's willing to go, and he has gone at this point. He's first in line, but he also knows that everybody's going to have a part in this. Warren Wiersbe says, leaders can't do the job by themselves, and workers can't accomplish much without leadership. We're all in this together. Nehemiah, he, he knows that, and, and we need to understand that. We're all in this together. Everyone would have to work together to accomplish this task. And there's some questions whenever we're faced with when God calls us to do something, whatever it is, there are two questions we need to ask. First and foremost, what are God's responsibilities? And Nehemiah's done that. He's spent time with the Lord. He knows that God's going to supply what needs to be done. But then he asks another question. And he asks it of himself and he challenges the people to do the same. The next question is, what are my responsibilities? Again, you know, God gives us a part in this. He could do it all on his own, but he chooses to allow us to have a role in his kingdom work. And so we always need to ask the question, you know, what are my responsibilities in this? We all have responsibilities. Nehemiah does that. He, he, what are my responsibilities? But then what are other people's responsibilities? Right? As a leader, one of the greatest challenges, one of the first lessons I know I learned in lead, leadership was delegation. Because you start out, you think, I can do it all. But no, you quickly realize that you can't do it all. You need people to help you. And, and in, until you learn that, that lesson, you're going to be extremely tired all the time. You, you know God's put you in a position. We've all been put in a position to where we need to depend on each other. There are responsibilities that I have, and there are responsibilities that others have. Just as Gary shared a few minutes ago, you know, offering is one of the ways that we bless other people. But in doing that, I receive a blessing, right? If you don't allow me to do my part, you're robbing me of a blessing. And the same is true for service. If I don't allow you to use the gifts and abilities God has given you, to serve him, I'm robbing you of a blessing. We all have a part in God's kingdom work. We all need to do our part. Fred Mansky Jr. said, the greatest leader is willing to train people and develop them to the point that they eventually surpass him or her in knowledge and ability. Somebody else defined leadership this way. It said, it's the art of getting people to do what they ought to do because they want to do it. Um, why would they want to? Well, because they feel God's call on their life. You know, putting people in a position and helping them grow in their faith to where they are alone with God and they hear the voice of God and because of the circumstances and because of where God's put them and what he's doing in the church that they're in or in the environment that they're in, they hear the voice of God. And when they hear the voice of God and their hearts are settled and their vision's cleared, they want to do what God's called them to do. I can't make you want to do what God's called you to do, but God can give you the direction and he'll give you the desire and the will if you'll submit. We all have to submit. So what are others' responsibilities? Those are questions we need to ask. But once we have our assignment, and even though we have a part, 
when we move through, move together in fulfilling God's plan, we need to make sure we give credit where credit's due. And, and first, that's to God, right? I mean, any ability we have comes from him. Any gifts that we have comes from him. And so we give credit. That's what Nehemiah did. Zeroing in on verse 18. I told them about how the gracious, why was he confident? The gracious hand of God had been on me. Why was he able to do what he had done to get to that point? And why would he be able to do what he was going to do through his leadership, the people doing what they were going to be able to do? It was all because God's hand was on it. And God's hand was on Nehemiah. He's giving credit to God, glory to God. And about my conversation with the king, he said. So even that, all of it, God's hand was on it. And he knew that. And so we should give grateful praise to God for who he is, what he has done, and what he will do. We, we think about what he's done in the past. We think about what he's doing now. And we look forward to what he's going to do. We give him praise and glory for all of it because he deserves it. But we do give recognition to the people who are a part of it. We give praise to God. He deserves the glory, but we give recognition to people for what God uses them to do. That's called encouragement. It's biblical, something we're called to do, and it's okay. We're not taking credit, but we do recognize the commitment of people. And when we talk about the history of the church, yesterday at the the banquet, we talked about the history of the church. We're looking back on those people who sacrificed so that we could be here today doing what we're doing. We're giving God the glory, but we're giving recognition to their sacrifice and their commitment. And we do that. We should encourage one another in that way. Nehemiah planned. The people worked. The wall was finished. And then we read in chapter 6, jumping ahead, chapter 6, verse 16, when all of our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence because they recognized that this work had been accomplished by the help of our God. Even people, even pagans were giving credit to God because they had faithfully followed God's plan. Now, we all have responsibilities in life, and, and, and when we, we look at this in light of where we're at right now with this, this remodeling, with this challenge, with this campaign, you know, we as a church, we fasted, we have prayed, we have sought the Lord, we have planned, we have assigned responsibilities already. You have people that have been working on this for two years now. Um, we, we've brought in the people that we need to, to to do the actual work. But we all need to ask the question now, what, what is my responsibility in this? And that's what I want. That's what we want for this church is, is not to, to, to give you a specific expectation, but for you individually and your family to seek the Lord as Nehemiah did and ask him the question, what's my responsibility in this? Lord, how do you want me to be a part in this? Because this is, uh, uh, all of us are involved here. This is a church moving forward together. And so what's my part? Because in the end, we are going to accept, hopefully, our responsibility. But in the end, we're going to give God glory for everything that we know he's going to do. Because we believe that God has called us, this group of people, in this time for such a time as this. It is our time. We've seen the faithfulness of the people in the past. It is our time to step up and be faithful. And we, we believe God is going to provide, and in the end, he's going to get the glory. He will be glorified through what takes place, which leads to the next point. We know he's called us, and we need to make sure that our call is a sovereign one. 
that what God's called us to do, that what we're doing is, is initiated by God. Nehemiah did that. The good hand of God was on me, he said. And then chapter 2, verse 12, he said, And I rose in the night, and a few men with me. He goes and he surveys the wall. He didn't tell anybody. He said, I told no one what my God was putting in my mind to do. So why does he do this? He doesn't need to tell anybody. He goes out. He surveys the wall. Why was he so confident? Because he knew God had called him to do this. He was moving forward in faith because he had confidence that God had called him to do it. You know, that's what happens when you walk with the Lord and you know he's called you to do something. Even if the odds are against you, even if it seems like the circumstances are unfavorable, even if by human reason, if it seems like it cannot be done, you move forward, God calls you because you know he has started it, he's initiated it, and what he starts, he finishes. God is faithful that way, and Nehemiah knew this, so he moves forward in faith, and he persevered according to God's will. Now think about, look at what all happens here, okay? This is just like a, you know, a Cliff Notes version of all the events that take place in opposition to what Nehemiah is trying to do. Again, the circumstances are not favorable to begin with, and then when he starts the work, it seems like everything and everybody's working against him. He, he gets resistance both from the outside of Jerusalem and the inside. Those three guys, I love their names, Samballat, Tobias, and Geshem. You know, those, are, those, those are memorable names, and not in a good way, because these guys opposed the nation of Israel. They opposed Nehemiah. They, they, they were on the outside, but listen, they had spies on the inside too. They had plants on the inside to discourage the work that God was trying to do. There were, there were attacks, threats of attacks from the enemy. Uh, you know, you, while you're working, you're going to be attacked because nobody wants you to finish this wall. Wall meant security. It meant power. And nobody wanted the nation of Israel to return to power. There were threats of attack. And then when the work's being done, they get halfway done. And what happens? The people begin to complain. The wall's halfway finished, but what are they saying? Look at all of the mess that's still here. Look at all the work that still needs to be done. Not, hey, glass is half full. We're halfway done. We've still got too much work to do. We're never going to get done. They're discouraged. So Nehemiah's dealing with discouragement. And then there are Jews, actual Jews who are living with the enemy, who come back in and say, guess what? You're going to be attacked and you're all going to be killed. You and your whole family is going to be killed. So their own people are resisting, are causing problems. They're going to come and attack you. So what's Nehemiah's response to that? I love it. He, he keeps his head through the whole thing. He responds to each situation, to that specific attack. He said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put two people at every station. One person stands guard. The other person works. And by the way, you who are working, you work with a trowel in one hand and a sword in another. Be ready. Stand guard. And here's how you're going to know when we're being attacked. I'm going to have the trumpeteers stationed at different places. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, everybody's going to rush to that area. And we're going to fight for our families, for our children. For generations to come, he says, you got your brother watching your back. We're all going to fight together. So he addresses each problem. When you hear the trumpet, in all of this, though, Nehemiah refuses to get off task. It's one of the, the amazing things. He stays focused. His enemies invite him out to meet. He says, hey, let's, let's all get together. Let's, 
you know, let's give peace a chance or whatever, you know, let's come together. And he doesn't fall for it, though. He knows it's a trap, and here's his response. Chapter 6, verse 3. I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? He would not be deterred. He would not be distracted. And there are plenty of distractions. Now, I'm going to show you something. When you see this, what do you, what do you see? Huh? A black circle. Now, let me ask you a question. Why does everybody focus on the black circle and not all the white around the black circle? You think about that? Because it's in the center of the page, right? But don't we tend to do that in our lives? We focus on the difficulties. We focus on the darkness instead of on the, on the light. You know, problems come our way. We're going to do things for the Lord, and there are going to be obstacles. And listen, there have been plenty of obstacles through this remodel, and there will be more. There are challenges. There are going to be more. As we serve the Lord, as we go and take the gospel to our community, there are going to be challenges. As we go on the mission field, as our team goes to Ecuador in the summer, there have already been challenges. There are going to be more challenges, but we've got a choice to make. Do we focus on the obstacles or do we focus on the light? Do we focus on the problems or do we focus on the problem solver? Do we focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and move forward knowing that he's called us this time this place, to this task for such a time as this. We have a choice. We can focus on the problems or we can focus on the one who solves the problems. Nehemiah, thankfully, chose to focus on the problem solver. And he persevered. Proverbs 21.5 says, If you plan and you work hard, you will have plenty. If you get in a hurry, you will end up poor. Nehemiah focused on the Lord. He planned. He took it one step at a time. He addressed each problem as it came, but he persevered, and God was faithful. And he ended up having plenty of everything he needed to do what God had called him to do. Next, in order to be a prayer-powered person like Nehemiah, that's a mouthful, we need to be sure that our ministry will be successful. And we do that by following the steps that I've just laid out. If God's called us, if we seek his will, if we act according to his plan, his purpose, he will give us success and his purposes will be established in and through us. Verse 20 of chapter 2, so I answered them and said to them, Nehemiah says, the God of heaven will give us success. This is long before the task had begun, the task was finished. God will give us success, therefore we his servants will arise and build. We move forward because God has called us, and we know if we are are, are working according to his plan, he'll give us success. Proverbs 16, 3, commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. I want just for a second to trace Nehemiah's so statements through the book before we finish today. So I prayed, chapter 2, verse 4. So I came to Jerusalem. God directed, called him, provided a way he came. So they strengthened their hands for the good work, the good work that God had called them to do. Remember, God's hand was on them. So we built the wall, chapter 4, verse 6. So we labored in the work. We worked and we continued to work, verse 21 of that same chapter. And then finally, so the wall was finished. A lot goes on during those so statements. There's a lot that transpires, but they stayed with it. Under Nehemiah's leadership, they continued, they faced the challenges, they persevered, and they finished the task that God had given them.
were it not for the dedication and determination that came from Nehemiah and the people's faith in God, Nehemiah never would have accepted the challenge to begin with, and he never would have experienced the joy of finishing the work that God had given them to do. But he did it. And his, God's purpose was established through Nehemiah and through his people. If we faithfully God, follow God's plan, we'll experience the same thing. And the result is that people will be encouraged. We'll be encouraged. God will be glorified and that people, not only people in this room, but people outside that God is going to bring under our influence will be encouraged by our faithfulness and by God working through us. Look at chapter 8, verse 6. The result of all this, Ezra comes together. They have a great worship service. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen and Amen, while lifting up their hands. And then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They were just left in awe, amazed at what God had done, encouraged, closer to the Lord, strengthened. Their faith was now strengthened because of what they had experienced. In July, on July the 9th, 2002, President George Bush presented a man by the name of Peter Drucker with that year's Presidential Medal of Freedom. It's the highest honor uh, given to civilians. And he was given to him, it, it was because he was the, fir, the world's foremost pioneer of management theory, his, his accomplishments in management. He championed concepts like privatization, management by objective, and decentralization. I mean, you know, he'd done some, some very notable things there, which is, you know, pretty cool in and of itself, I guess. But, but, but what struck me in reading this story was his words at the ceremony. He said this. He said, no organization can depend on genius alone. The supply is always scarce and unreliable. It is the test of an organization to make ordinary human beings perform better than they seem capable of, to bring out whatever strength there is in its members, and to use each man's strength to help the others perform. It's dependent upon each other. The purpose of an organization, and hear this, is to enable common men to do uncommon things. Now think about that in the spiritual sense, in the context of the church, what we're called to do. We are all ordinary human beings, all of us limited, right? I mean, even, even the smartest person in this room is limited in some way. We all are. We've got limitations. Common, ordinary people but we're followers of Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, empowered by God. The purpose of the church, the purpose of God manifesting his presence in and through us is this. He wants to take ordinary people like you and me and do, do not just uncommon things, but supernatural things, extraordinary things. Not just for any reason, but for his glory and for his kingdom. And yes, this building program is a part of that. But beyond that, what God has called this church to do in this day, in this time, in this community, he's brought us together for such a time as this. And we all have a part. Whatever your part is, whoever you are, we cannot do this without you. God's called us to advance his kingdom. And we need every soldier involved. Everybody has a part. But what we know is that we are ordinary people brought together by the power of God to do 
extraordinary things. First Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are also doing. We need each other, encouraging each other as we move forward, because there are going to be obstacles with everything that we do. Satan's going to try to discourage us. He's going to try to convince us that we're not worthy, that we're not capable, that God really didn't call us to do what he's called us to do. Did God really say that? It's a pretty common, well-used line of his, right? He's going to try to convince us of many reasons why we shouldn't move forward according to God's plan. We need to encourage one another. And that encouragement comes first and foremost from our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so as we conclude this series and we move into the final stage of this campaign, as we move forward with the building, with our other ministries that God's called us to do, an an important question that I think we all need to kind of land on. What fuels you? We know what fueled Nehemiah. We've seen it. What fuels you? What fuels your family? Is it your relationship with Christ? Are you fueled by prayer, communion with him? Are you motivated by his call, his direction? Or is it something else? You have to have a relationship with Jesus to be fueled by him, right? If you you don't know him personally, that's step number one. Maybe God's placing it on your heart today, wherever you're at, here or at home. He's calling you. You know that, that you need to have a relationship with him. You're not secure because you haven't received salvation. And that's step number one for you is to cry out to God and ask him uh, to come into your life and to save you. He's already provided a way for you to be saved by giving his life on the cross, dying for your sins and being raised three days later. But for the rest of us who walk with the Lord, what is fueling us from day to day? If it's not prayer, then what needs to change in our lives so that it is? If we're not acting with confidence and with assurance, what is the reason for that? Where have we gotten off track? We all just need to come back to where we began. And that is on our knees in front of our Savior, with our Savior. Let's take a few moments and just seek the Lord before we have a time of commitment. Father, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for your gifts that you've given us. We thank you for the call that you've placed on our lives to be a part of your work. None of us deserve it. None of us are worthy. None of us are qualified. Yet you choose to use us. And Lord, we can move forward with faith and confidence based on the call that you've placed on our lives, the direction that you've given us. But we have to be willing to seek your face. We have to be willing to submit to you daily and seek your will through prayer and through your word. But if we, like Nehemiah, are willing to do that, to give ourselves to you, to receive your direction and to follow your direction, there is no limit to what you can do in and through us for your glory. Lord, I pray, however you've called us to respond to this message today, the testimony that's been given to the time of worship that we've had, Lord, you're speaking to hearts. I believe that you are, and I pray that we will respond accordingly, whether it's someone that you're calling into a relationship with you for the first time, or if it's someone who has walked with you for years and has somewhere gotten off track and they're not motivated, they're not fueled by your will and your direction, whatever we need to do, Father, just show us. Just speak to our hearts and may we respond in obedience. We thank you for the opportunity to respond. And I pray that we will in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?